History of England, Chapter 11, Part 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England, from the Accession of James the Second, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 11, Part 8. The Office of Pensionary, always important, was peculiarly important when the stadtholder was absent from the Hague. Had the politics of Heinzius been still what they once were, all the great designs of William might have been frustrated. But happily there was, between these two eminent men, a perfect friendship, which, till death dissolved it, appears never to have been interrupted for one moment by suspicion or ill-humour. On all large questions of European policy they cordially agreed. They corresponded assiduously, and most unreservedly. For, though William was slow to give his confidence, yet when he gave it, he gave it entire. The correspondence is still extant, and is most honourable to both. The King's letters would alone suffice to prove that he was one of the greatest statesmen whom Europe has produced. While he lived, the pensionary was content to be the most obedient, the most trusty, and the most discreet of servants. But after the death of the master, the servant proved himself capable of supplying with eminent ability the master's place, and was renowned throughout Europe as one of the great triumvirate which humbled the pride of Louis the Fourteenth. The foreign policy of England, directed immediately by William in close concert with Heinzius, was at this time eminently skilful and successful. But in every other part of the administration, the evils arising from the mutual animosity of factions were but too plainly discernible. Nor was this all. To the evils arising from the mutual animosity of factions were added other evils arising from the mutual animosity of sects. The year 1689 is a not less important epoch in the ecclesiastical than in the civil history of England. In that year was granted the first legal indulgence to dissenters. In that year was made the last serious attempt to bring the Presbyterians within the pale of the Church of England. From that year dates a new schism, made, in defiance of ancient precedents, by men who had always professed to regard schism with peculiar abhorrence, and ancient precedents with peculiar veneration. In that year began the long struggle between two great parties of conformists. Those parties indeed had, under various forms, existed within the Anglican Communion ever since the Reformation, but till after the Revolution they did not appear marshalled in a regular and permanent order of battle against each other, and were therefore not known by established names. Some time after the accession of William they began to be called the High Church Party and the Low Church Party, and long before the end of his reign these appellations were in common use. In the summer of 1688, the breaches which had long divided the great body of English Protestants had seemed to be almost closed. Disputes about bishops and synods, written prayers and extemporaneous prayers, white gowns and black gowns, sprinkling and dipping, kneeling and sitting, had been for a short space intermitted. The serried array which was then drawn up against popery measured the whole of the vast interval which separated Sancroft from Bunyan prelates recently conspicuous as persecutors now declared themselves friends of religious liberty, 
and exhorted their clergy to live in a constant interchange of hospitality and of kind offices with the separatists. Separatists, on the other hand, who had recently considered mitres and lawn sleeves as the livery of Antichrist, were putting candles in windows and throwing faggots on bonfires in honour of the prelates. These feelings continued to grow, till they attained their greatest height on the memorable day on which the common oppressor finally quitted Whitehall, and on which an innumerable multitude, tricked out in orange ribbons, welcomed the common deliverer to St. James's. When the clergy of London came, headed by Compton, to express their gratitude to him by whose instrumentality God had wrought salvation for the church and the state, the procession was swollen by some eminent nonconformist divines. It was delightful to many good men to learn that pious and learned Presbyterian ministers had walked in the train of a bishop, had been greeted by him with fraternal kindness, and had been announced by him in the presence chamber as his dear and respected friends, separated from him indeed by some differences of opinion on minor points, but united to him by Christian charity and by common zeal for the essentials of the reformed faith. There had never before been such a day in England and there has never since been such a day. The tide of feeling was already on the turn, and the ebb was even more rapid than the flow had been. In a very few hours the high churchman began to feel tenderness for the enemy whose tyranny was now no longer feared, and dislike of the allies whose services were now no longer needed. It was easy to gratify both feelings by imputing to the dissenters the misgovernment of the exiled king. His majesty, such was now the language of too many Anglican divines, would have been an excellent sovereign had he not been too confiding, too forgiving. He had put his trust in a class of men who hated his office, his family, his person, with implacable hatred. He had ruined himself in the vain attempt to conciliate them. He had relieved them, in defiance of law and of the unanimous sense of the old royalist party, from the pressure of the penal code, had allowed them to worship God publicly after their own mean and tasteless fashion, had admitted them to the bench of justice and to the privy council, had gratified them with fur robes, gold chains, salaries, and pensions. In return for his liberality, these people, once so uncouth in demeanor, once so savage in opposition even to legitimate authority, had become the most abject of flatterers. They had continued to applaud and encourage him when the most devoted friends of his family had retired in shame and sorrow from his palace. Who had more foully sold the religion and liberty of his country than Titus? Who had been more zealous for the dispensing power than Alsop? Who had urged on the persecution of the seven bishops more fiercely than Lobb? What chaplain, impatient for a deanery, had ever, even when preaching in the royal presence on the 30th of January or the 29th of May, uttered adulation more gross than might easily be found in those addresses by which dissenting congregations had testified their gratitude for the illegal declaration of indulgence? Was it strange that a prince who had never studied law-books should have believed that he was only exercising his rightful prerogative when he was thus encouraged by a faction which had always ostentatiously professed hatred of arbitrary power? Misled by such guidance, he had gone further and further in the wrong path. He had at length estranged from him hearts which would once have poured forth their best blood in his defense. He had left himself no supporters except his old foes 
and when the day of peril came, he had found that the feeling of his old foes towards him was still what it had been when they had attempted to rob him of his inheritance, and when they had plotted against his life. Every man of sense had long known that the sectaries bore no love to monarchy. It had now been found that they bore as little love to freedom. To trust them with power would be an error not less fatal to the nation than to the throne. If, in order to redeem pledges somewhat rashly given, it should be thought necessary to grant them relief, every concession ought to be accompanied by limitations and precautions. Above all, no man who was an enemy to the ecclesiastical constitution of the realm ought to be permitted to bear any part in the civil government. Between the nonconformists and the rigid conformists stood the low church party. That party contained, as it still contains, two very different elements, a Puritan element and a latitudinarian element. On almost every question, however, relating either to ecclesiastical polity or to the ceremonial of public worship, the Puritan low churchman and the latitudinarian low churchman were perfectly agreed. They saw in the existing polity and in the existing ceremonial no defect, no blemish, which could make it their duty to become dissenters. Nevertheless, they held that both the polity and the ceremonial were means and not ends, and that the essential spirit of Christianity might exist without episcopal orders and without a book of common prayer. They had, while James was on the throne, been mainly instrumental in forming the great Protestant coalition against popery and tyranny, and they continued in 1689 to hold the same conciliatory language which they had held in 1688. They gently blamed the scruples of the nonconformists. It was undoubtedly a great weakness to imagine that there could be any sin in wearing a white robe, in tracing a cross, in kneeling at the rails of an altar. But the highest authority had given the plainest directions as to the manner in which such weakness was to be treated. The weak brother was not to be judged. He was not to be despised. Believers who had stronger minds were commanded to soothe him by large compliances, and carefully to remove out of his path every stumbling-block which could cause him to offend. An apostle had declared that, though he had himself no misgivings about the use of animal food or of wine, he would eat herbs and drink water, rather than give scandal to the feeblest of his flock. What would he have thought of ecclesiastical rulers who, for the sake of a vestment, a gesture, a posture, had not only torn the church asunder, but had filled all the jails of England with men of orthodox faith and saintly life. The reflections thrown by the high churchmen on the recent conduct of the dissenting body the low churchmen pronounced to be grossly unjust. The wonder was not that a few nonconformists should have accepted with thanks an indulgence which, illegal as it was, had opened the doors of their prisons and given security to their hearths, but that the nonconformists generally should have been true to the cause of a constitution from the benefits of which they had been long excluded. It was most unfair to impute to a great party the faults of a few individuals. Even among the bishops of the established church, James had found tools and sycophants. The conduct of Cartwright and Parker had been much more inexcusable than that of Alsop and Lobb. Yet those who held the dissenters answerable for the errors of Alsop and Lobb would doubtless think it most unreasonable to hold the church answerable for the far deeper guilt of Cartwright and Parker. 
The low church clergymen were a minority, and not a large minority, of their profession. But their weight was much more than proportioned to their numbers, for they mustered strong in the capital, they had great influence there, and the average of intellect and knowledge was higher among them than among their order generally. We should probably overrate their numerical strength if we were to estimate them at a tenth part of the priesthood. Yet it will scarcely be denied that there were among them as many men of distinguished eloquence and learning as could be found in the other nine-tenths. Among the laity who conformed to the established religion the parties were not unevenly balanced. Indeed, the line which separated them deviated very little from the line which separated the Whigs and the Tories. In the House of Commons, which had been elected when the Whigs were triumphant, the Low Church party greatly preponderated. In the Lords there was an almost exact equipoise, and very slight circumstances sufficed to turn the scale. The head of the Low Church party was the King. He had been bred a Presbyterian. He was, from rational conviction, a latitudinarian, and personal ambition, as well as higher motives, prompted him to act as mediator among Protestant sects. He was bent on effecting three great reforms in the laws touching ecclesiastical matters. His first object was to obtain for dissenters permission to celebrate their worship in freedom and security. His second object was to make such changes in the Anglican ritual and polity as, without offending those to whom that ritual and polity were dear, might conciliate the moderate nonconformists. His third object was to throw open civil offices to Protestants without distinction of sect. All his three objects were good, but the first only was at that time attainable. He came too late for the second, and too early for the third. A few days after his accession, he took a step which indicated, in a manner not to be mistaken, his sentiments touching ecclesiastical polity and public worship. He found only one see unprovided with a bishop. Seth Ward, who had during many years had charge of the Diocese of Salisbury, and who had been honorably distinguished as one of the founders of the Royal Society, having long survived his faculties, died while the country was agitated by the elections for the Convention, without knowing that great events, of which not the least important had passed under his own roof, had saved his church and his country from ruin. The choice of a successor was no light matter. That choice would inevitably be considered by the country as a prognostic of the highest import. The king, too, might well be perplexed by the number of divines whose erudition, eloquence, courage, and uprightness had been conspicuously displayed during the contentions of the last three years. The preference was given to Burnett. His claims were doubtless great. Yet William might have had a more tranquil reign if he had postponed for a time the well-earned promotion of his chaplain, and had bestowed the first great spiritual preferment which, after the Revolution, fell to the disposal of the crown, on some eminent theologian attached to the new settlement, yet not generally hated by the clergy. Unhappily, the name of Burnet was odious to the great majority of the Anglican priesthood. Though, as respected doctrine, he by no means belonged to the extreme section of the Latitudinarian party. He was popularly regarded as the personification of the Latitudinarian spirit. This distinction he owed to the prominent place which he held in literature and politics, to the readiness of his tongue and of his pert, and above all to the frankness and boldness of his nature, frankness which could keep no secret, 
and boldness which flinched from no danger. He had formed but a low estimate of the character of his clerical brethren considered as a body, and, with his usual indiscretion, he frequently suffered his opinion to escape him. They hated him in return, with a hatred which has descended to their successors, and which, after the lapse of a century and a half, does not appear to languish. As soon as the king's decision was known, the question was everywhere asked, What will the archbishop do? Sancroft had absented himself from the convention. He had refused to sit in the privy council. He had ceased to confirm, to ordain, and to institute, and he was seldom seen out of the walls of his palace at Lambeth. He, on all occasions, professed to think himself still bound by his old oath of allegiance. Burnett he regarded as a scandal to the priesthood, a Presbyterian in a surplice. The prelate who should lay hands on that unworthy head would commit more than one great sin. He would, in a sacred place and before a great congregation of the faithful, at once acknowledge an usurper as a king and confer on a schismatic the character of a bishop. During some time Sancroft positively declared that he would not obey the precept of William. Lloyd of St. Asaph, who was the common friend of the archbishop and of the bishop-elect, entreated and expostulated in vain. Nottingham, who, of all the laymen connected with a new government, stood best with the clergy, tried his influence, but to no better purpose. The Jacobites said everywhere that they were sure of the good old primate, that he had the spirit of a martyr, that he was determined to brave in the cause of the monarchy and of the church the utmost rigor of those laws with which the obsequious parliaments of the sixteenth century had fenced the royal supremacy. He did, in truth, hold out long, but at the last moment his heart failed him, and he looked round him for some mode of escape. Fortunately, as childish scruples often disturbed his conscience, childish expedients often quieted it. A more childish expedient than that to which he now resorted is not to be found in all the tones of the casuists. He would not himself bear a part in the service. He would not publicly pray for the prince and princess as king and queen. He would not call for their mandate, order it to be read, and then proceed to obey it. But he issued a commission, empowering any three of his suffragans to commit, in his name and as his delegates, the sins which he did not choose to commit in person. The reproaches of all parties soon made him ashamed of himself. He then tried to suppress the evidence of his fault by means more discreditable than the fault itself. He abstracted from among the public records of which he was the guardian the instrument by which he had authorized his brethren to act for him, and was with difficulty induced to give it up. Burnett, however, had, under the authority of this instrument, being consecrated. When he next waited on Mary, she reminded him of the conversations which they had held at the Hague about the high duties and grave responsibility of bishops. I hope, she said, that you will put your notions in practice. Her hope was not disappointed. Whatever may be thought of Burnett's opinions touching civil and ecclesiastical polity, or of the temper and judgment which he showed in defending those opinions, the utmost malevolence of faction could not venture to deny that he tended his flock with a zeal, diligence, and disinterestedness worthy of the purest ages of the Church. His jurisdiction extended over Wiltshire and Berkshire. 
These counties he divided into districts, which he sedulously visited. About two months of every summer he passed in preaching, catechizing, and confirming daily from church to church. When he died, there was no corner of his diocese in which the people had not had seven or eight opportunities of receiving his instructions and of asking his advice. The worst weather, the worst roads, did not prevent him from discharging these duties. On one occasion, when the floods were out, he exposed his life to imminent risk rather than disappoint a rural congregation which was in expectation of a discourse from the bishop. The poverty of the inferior clergy was a constant cause of uneasiness to his kind and generous heart. He was indefatigable, and at length successful, in his attempts to obtain for them from the crown that grant which is known by the name of Queen Anne's Bounty. He was especially careful, when he travelled through his diocese, to lay no burden on them. Instead of requiring them to entertain him, he entertained them. He always fixed his headquarters at a market town, kept a table there, and, by his decent hospitality and munificent charities, tried to conciliate those who were prejudiced against his doctrines. When he bestowed a poor benefice, and he had many such to bestow, his practice was to add out of his own purse twenty pounds a year to the income. Ten promising young men, to each of whom he allowed thirty pounds a year, studied divinity under his own eye in the close of Salisbury. He had several children, but he did not think himself justified in hoarding for them. Their mother had brought him a good fortune. With that fortune, he always said, they must be content. He would not, for their sakes, be guilty of the crime of raising an estate out of revenues sacred to piety and charity. Such merits as these will, in the judgment of wise and candid men, appear fully to atone for every offence which can be justly imputed to him. When he took his seat in the House of Lords, he found that assembly busied in ecclesiastical legislation. A statesman who was well known to be devoted to the Church had undertaken to plead the cause of the dissenters. No subject in the realm occupied so important and commanding a position with reference to religious parties as Nottingham. To the influence derived from rank, from wealth, and from office, he added the higher influence which belongs to knowledge, to eloquence, and to integrity. The orthodoxy of his creed, the regularity of his devotions, and the purity of his morals gave a peculiar weight to his opinions on questions in which the interests of Christianity were concerned. Of all the ministers of the new sovereigns, he had the largest share of the confidence of the clergy. Shrewsbury was certainly a Whig, and probably a freethinker. He had lost one religion, and it did not very clearly appear that he had found another. Halifax had been during many years accused of skepticism, deism, atheism. Danby's attachment to episcopacy and the liturgy was rather political than religious. But Nottingham was such a son as the Church was proud to own. Propositions, therefore, which, if made by his colleagues, would infallibly produce a violent panic among the clergy, might, if made by him, find a favorable reception even in universities and chapter-houses. The friends of religious liberty were, with good reason, desirous to obtain his cooperation, and, up to a certain point, he was not unwilling to cooperate with them. He was decidedly for a toleration. 
he was even for what was then called a comprehension. That is to say, he was desirous to make some alterations in the Anglican discipline and ritual for the purpose of removing the scruples of the moderate Presbyterians. But he was not prepared to give up the Test Act. The only fault which he found with that Act was that it was not sufficiently stringent, and that it left loopholes through which schismatics sometimes crept into civil employments. In truth, it was because he was not disposed to part with the test that he was willing to consent to some changes in the liturgy. He conceived that, if the entrance of the church were but a very little widened, great numbers who had hitherto lingered near the threshold would press in. Those who still remained without would then not be sufficiently numerous or powerful to extort any further concession, and would be glad to compound for a bare toleration. The opinion of the low churchmen concerning the Test Act differed widely from his, but many of them thought that it was of the highest importance to have his support on the great questions of toleration and comprehension. From the scattered fragments of information which have come down to us, it appears that a compromise was made. It is quite certain that Nottingham undertook to bring in a toleration bill and a comprehension bill, and to use his best endeavors to carry both bills through the House of Lords. It is highly probable that, in return for this great service, some of the leading Whigs consented to let the Test Act remain, for the present, unaltered. End of chapter 11, part 8